Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. So we're deep into a study on the book of Job. I have to say, if you've missed any of it, but especially the previous episode on the whirlwind, you may want to go back and listen to those first. We really have been on a journey. What I love about this book is that it's often a surprising journey. We thought at the start Job would silently suffer, but he hasn't. He's raged and lamented at the injustice of his suffering. We thought the friends who offered him lofty answers of God's greatness and Job's sinfulness would be commended, but they haven't been. Instead, stunningly, the very thing the friends were outraged Job was seeking, that God would appear and answer Job's case, has actually happened. God has appeared. But rather than answer, God has come to question. And now it is Job who, after a tour of creation, is going to be summoned to speak. As ever, we have a companion study that takes you through each of these passages, available at our website, burningwordpodcast.com. This episode is all about Job's confession. I think this is one of the key insights of Job and our question, where is God in my suffering? At the end, after returning to the Word and encountering God, we too will be summoned to speak our own confession. Yet for any who flinch at the term, stick around. After we examine it carefully, I think Job's confession might just surprise you. So let's dive in. So in the early 1970s, a Harvard professor of psychology by the name Armand Nicoli put together an intriguing class proposal. He wanted to create space for dialogue to take place about how a person's beliefs influence the outworkings of their life. So often in academic studies, all a student is encouraged to analyze is the content of the idea. So Dr. Nicoli began to wonder, what would happen if I asked my students to compare not only the ideas but the writings and life of two major intellectual giants of the 20th century. In fact, what if we had them compare how they answered and lived on the questions of God, love, sex, and meaning? Students were thrilled. It turned out there was nothing students wanted more than to talk about God, love, sex, and meaning. Rigorous debates ensued as the students engaged not only the ideas, but the lives of these two thinkers. The class quickly grew in popularity. Eventually, it would be ranked as one of the most sought-after and hardest-to-get-into courses at Harvard. Finally, in 2003, Dr. Nicoli would publish the content of his course in a book titled The God Question, C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud on God, Love, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. The genius of Dr. Nicoli's class was that these two thinkers in many ways agreed on much. Sigmund Freud, the revolutionary founder of psychology, was known for his brilliant, if eccentric, insights into the human subconscious. He, of course, was a staunch atheist, claiming that God was simply a childish fancy that projected our desire to have some sort of father figure in our lives. For Freud, humanity needed to get a grip and grow up. He would say, The religions of mankind must be classed among the mass delusions. He also would say religion 
bears the imprints of the time in which they arose, the ignorant times of the childhood of humanity. C.S. Lewis was such an interesting sparring partner with Freud because at first he agreed with him. Until his early 30s, Lewis was himself an ardent atheist, growing up disillusioned with the lack of beauty and substance in the religion he encountered of his youth. Yet this is precisely why Dr. Nicoli's class was so engaging to students from various backgrounds. It wasn't from a lack of reason that Lewis became a Christian later in life, but precisely because he would reason through a long and difficult period of critical reflection, examining historical evidence. Lewis describes almost reluctantly the arduous journey he went on towards his ultimate confession of faith. One of his classic passages describes the night, and he says, You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most reluctant convert in all of England. Lewis's confession on that night would alter the trajectory of his life and fuel for him a lifelong passion to explain the reasons of his faith. Yet what was the impact their beliefs had on their lives? Well, though Dr. Nicoli insists on his desire to be a fair arbiter in the course, he can't help but acknowledge that when it comes to the evidence for happiness, Lewis does seem to win hands down. After his confession, Lewis describes himself undergoing a change from a gloomy, introverted pessimist to a cheerful extrovert, described by a close friend as great fun, an extremely witty and amusing companion, considerate, more concerned with the welfare of his friends than with himself. This, of course, did not mean that Lewis did not suffer. Late in life, Lewis would grapple deeply with the death of his only recently married spouse, Joy. Yet for the deepness of his questioning, it's evident that Lewis's faith sustained him. He would die from kidney failure four years later at the age of 64. Freud, by contrast, Dr. Nicoli admits, was a dour pessimist who argued violently with most of his friends and colleagues. His opinion of human nature was low. He once wrote to a friend that he found little that is good about human beings on the whole. In my experience, most of them are trash, no matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or none at all. Faced with suffering in his own life or in that of others, Freud's only answer was to endure with resignation. He followed this philosophy consistently, stoically enduring the pained discomfort of cancer for two decades before he would die with assisted suicide at the age of 83. I wanted to start this episode with Dr. Nicoli's course because it fixes our gaze on the question all of us must ask ourselves in the face of suffering. And the question is this, what is the trajectory of my beliefs? These two men, both academically credentialed at the highest level, both equally passionate about the advocacy of their values, both intimately familiar with suffering. Yet their lives chronicle different trajectories because of the object of their belief and the nature of their confessions. Dr. Nicoli would say in his course, I'm not here to advocate for one or the other. And I think that's partly wise. How can you force either trajectory of belief on a student? How could you give to someone the words of their own confession? 
Yet the question Dr. Nicoli wanted each of his students to ponder is the very question we must now hold as we sit with Job, about to make his confession before God. How do the beliefs you hold and the confessions you make shape the life you are going to live? How do your beliefs prepare you for suffering and shape how you're going to respond to it? We come at this moment in Job's story to the pivot point of faith in the life of the sufferer. I know there's been a lot we've explored so far in this podcast. So let me try to make my case clear of what I think the book of Job has been all about. Far too often, communities of faith rush the sufferer. They try to force them to endlessly bellow praise instead of lament in the face of immense pain. They demand them to accept God's good purposes as the reason for their suffering, much as the friends demand Job to accept their retributive system of God. They consistently ignore the facts of the case. Much as Job tries to present that his suffering couldn't be about his discipline, couldn't be an excuse to make Job repent. And we will be told at the end of Job that God sides with Job's words and in so doing invites us to follow Job's lead. Our suffering should bring forth our pain. God wants us to love him enough to question him, to wrestle honestly with the doubts that have formed and the pain that won't simply be prayed away. God wants us to call to him, to question, to even challenge him to answer, because God does want to speak. And he will speak with all the terrifying force and mystery of a whirlwind. I think this is the invitation of Job to any sufferer. Can you endure in your pursuit of God? Can you hold out until he appears? Not to offer answers, but to offer instead an encounter. This is the task, the hope, the goal for any suffering. I don't see how you could be satisfied with anything less. I don't see how any other way would allow Job to sustain true faith. Yet if the book of Job has argued for the need to encounter God, the moment we're about to explore is the true test of what happens when we finally realize this encounter. How will Job respond when God appears? What is the trajectory of Job's beliefs? What will be the nature of his confession? How will his life be changed by the God who has appeared? To cover Job's confession, though, we do have one last section of God's speech in the whirlwind that we have not yet considered. I I want to admit, it's a mysterious stretch. And like all the texts we're going to look at today, it is fiercely debated by scholars for its ambiguity and complexity. But I think this last portion of God's speech is going to offer some key insight into the final invitation of who God is calling Job to be, and it's going to prepare us to respond with our own confession. So if you recall, Job had been spoken to by God from the whirlwind with a tour de force of creation. This tour had ended with God getting down on his hands and knees to look with close attention upon six pairs of creatures he created. When he summoned Job to speak, Job boldly refused. Yet God was not deterred. He will now offer two final creatures for Job to consider, two creatures steeped in myth and lore in the ancient world. This is the behemoth and the leviathan. So let's first look at behemoth. This is coming from verse 15 to 18 of chapter 40. Reads, Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox, 
Behold his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. Okay, so God is drawing Job's attention to behemoth. In Hebrew, behemoth quite literally means mega cattle. Most scholars think that something like the hippopotamus would be the right animal to hold in mind. Though it's important to note that for Job's ancient audience, to speak of behemoth was far more mysterious, far more mythical, much like we would talk about a dragon today. These were animals of legend. Anytime a creature terrorized your flock or seemed to wreck devastation across your fields, you might say, surely that was behemoth, the unknown monster capable of terrifying power. Yet, to Job, God is going to note that even the behemoth is one that I made as I made you. It's verse 15. It's interesting, isn't it? Even a creature Job would have considered to be filled with terrifying power that represents chaos itself is a creature much like Job. God, rather than afraid or even pitched in battle against behemoth, is going to point to the dignity and strength that behemoth reflects. Listen to this following section that finishes the description of behemoth. This is verses 19 to 24. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes, or pierce his nose with a snare? So we find here that Behemoth is the first of the works of God. Mountains yield food for Behemoth. Reeds shelter it. Lotus trees cover it. Yet when the rivers are turbulent, the Behemoth is not afraid. The waters of Jordan rush through its mouth, and the Behemoth is confident. No one can pierce the Behemoth's nose and tell it where to go. Carol Newsom, one of the great scholars on Job who I've mentioned before, makes the intriguing case that the ancient readers would be surprised at this description of behemoth. Rather than the creature of violence they often imagined, behemoth is instead honored, dignified, even provided for by God. It's precisely in behemoth's strength and confidence that the Lord celebrates and delights. Newsom suggests that perhaps, by dignifying behemoth, God is also offering dignity to Job, and that Job would not have missed this point. As God says at the start of his description in verse 15, Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. The behemoth, for all its exceptional strength, confidence, and pride, is not a threat to God. The behemoth is not an opponent that God must defeat. Instead, God honors Behemoth, much as God honors Job, by offering his encounter in the whirlwind. We're starting to see that this tour God has taken Job on through creation is not intended for retribution, to beat him into submission with pounding questions about Job's smallness. Instead, this has been an elevating tour, a tour of dignity and insight. 
as God walks through the design and counsel of his creation, he's holding up to Job creature after creature that he cares for and yet calls forth in strength and honor. Hold that thought as we turn now to Leviathan. This is coming in Job 41, verse 1. It says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? So if Behemoth was likely a hippopotamus, then Leviathan is likely a large whale. You may stumble across an older opinion that talks about Leviathan as a crocodile, but most scholars now agree the descriptors are all pointing us to the ocean rather than a river. So hold whale in mind. Similarly to the Behemoth, the point is not just a literal creature though. It's important to hold that mythical, legend-like status that's going to surround Leviathan. Leviathan was often described as the great sea serpent. It too represented chaos. In fact, whenever boats would sink or soldiers would drown or the sea would suddenly churn, surely you'd say, this is the work of Leviathan. For many ancient cultures, if you were to travel the seas at all, you would need to hope and pray that your God had done the heavy lifting of subduing Leviathan, the force of chaos for the duration of your travels. So the setup here is God questioning Job. Is Job powerful enough to take on the chaos of the sea? Can Job subdue such a powerful opponent? Here's how God keeps questioning in Job 41, 2-7. Can you put a rope in Leviathan's nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will Leviathan make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will Leviathan make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? So there's this imagery of the hunt that God is evoking of Leviathan. Has Job ever tried to tackle Leviathan? Has Job ever taken on such a great creature as his servant? This is Ahab's hunt for Moby Dick. And God's going to continue in verses 8 to 11. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So we were perhaps expecting this contest that God was building to and highlighting Job's smallness that would take place between God and Leviathan. As if Job can't surely subdue Leviathan on his own, but the implicit point is that God could. However, we're suddenly told in verse 11 that Leviathan too is actually just one of God's creatures. The verse says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now, this is interesting. We thought Leviathan needed to be subdued. We thought the whole point of justice is that God would take down the forces of chaos that raged against her life. We thought if God cared, he would eliminate every threat set against us, especially an immensely powerful creature like Leviathan. But here, God's speech instead twinkles with these playful ambiguities. 
It is the very awe-inspiring greatness of Leviathan that resists all who oppose it. Yet its fierce resistance is claimed as the very glory and majesty of God who alone created it. Moby Dick was not meant to be conquered by Ahab, but instead speaks of the great struggle that points to an even greater God. God has just said in verse 10, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Rather than oppose God, Leviathan too is dignified by God precisely because Leviathan speaks of an even more powerful God. God will go on to pour forth this unexpectedly lavish praise over the details of Leviathan's strength. This is a snippet from verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning Leviathan's limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. I mean, God delights in Leviathan. God's going to praise that Leviathan's sneezes are like lightning. It's in verse 18. Or that Leviathan's mouth pours forth flames. That's verses 19 to 21. You've got to look them up. Nothing and no one can avail against Leviathan. Even the waters Leviathan glides over boil like a pot. It's verse 31. This is kind of strange, isn't it? It's like God loves how powerful Leviathan is. Like the strength of Leviathan only offers more majesty and praise to God, its creator. This culminates in the final verse of the passage. And this is the last verse God is going to say before he summons Job again to speak. This is Job 41, 33 to 34. On earth, there is no creature his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. He is king over the sons of pride. Leviathan has no fear. He is a creature unlike any other. In fact, God has even made Leviathan king over its domain, even though these are sons of pride. I realize these are strange texts. Make no mistake. Yet they make you wonder... Why is it that God would point to these two creatures? Why would this be Job's final word from God? What difference do these two make to Job's suffering? Now, I'm not sure I have the definitive answer. Leviathan and Behemoth sit sort of mysteriously. They make us ponder them. And any time we feel close to the answer, we turn them over again and discover something new. But there's something here in God's choice of Behemoth and Leviathan that draws me to him. Another scholar named T.K. Beale, in his book titled Religion and Its Monsters, puts it this way. God does not squash Job like the monster Job fears. But instead, God out-monsters him. Now, that's kind of a strange thought, but Beale's going to go further in explaining what he means. This is what Beale says. On the other hand, there is a consolation here in that God is licensing rage against God in the face of undeserved pain. This is a terrifying revelation, affirming that Job's questions open up abysses and awaken monsters who turn out to be beloved by God against the friend's answers that attempt to shut them up and put them back in place. I think what Beale's getting at is that God has not subdued Job but instead has out-monstered him. In so doing, he has demonstrated the dignity and involvement of the Creator, even in the deepest recesses of chaos. 
Something important is being disclosed by God in these creatures that are being offered to enlarge Job's insight into his own creaturely existence. If I had to make a guess, I think God shows Job these two terrifyingly strong and proud creatures because God wants Job to know that God is not afraid of creatures like Job who courageously attempt to contend with God. This is dense, but would anything else suffice for questions as important as those of justice and our suffering? Now, if I'm right here, this insight is a crucial setup for Job's answer. Twice God has summoned Job to gird up his loins and speak like a warrior. Once, Job has attempted, instead, silence, presuming that to be what God wanted. But now Job must find the words to finally speak. What is it that Job will say in his confession? This is now Job 42, 1-6. And this is the final speech that Job's going to give us. It's going to capture the heart, the essence of his journey. Here's what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, there's a lot going on here, so we need to move slowly. I'm going to break it down verse by verse. First, it's clear that Job has now committed himself to a humbled state. Verse 2 is going to say, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I don't think anyone can tour the cosmos with God and not be humbled. No one can view those intricacies of the sky and not experience some wonder. I'm not sure anyone can study the biological complexity of Earth's creatures and thinks this seems to have just come from a casual hand. So Job next will repeat back God's previous words. You may recall, God began by asking, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job here is acknowledging God's initial challenge. Job is accepting that he did speak without knowledge of the plans or the counsel of God. So now this is what Job says in verse 3. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Okay, so so far, I think we're clear. I again know of no instance when an encounter with God does not overwhelm the person who experiences it. Job has been met in the whirlwind, and he has toured the farthest reaches of the cosmos with his creator. His concession that there is much that he did not understand seems a bit of an understatement, though it is important. So now we get another quote, where Job's once again speaking God's words back to him. The quote says, Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's what we've been building towards. But now we must look at Job's finale. In response to God's call, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, 
but now my eye sees you. This is what the whole study that we've been on has been about. This is what I believe suffering demands. Even the best words of friends will only fill our ears. Even the densest theology textbooks will only give us more words. What our eyes need in suffering is to see. This is what Job has called for. Eyes so overwhelmed by the suffering they've previously encountered that they're going to need to see something far greater for their sight to be redeemed. This is why we need an encounter with God more than anything else in our suffering. Yet, it's the final verse of this passage that can mislead us, which is unfortunate. Because if you're tracking, all of Job's response, and indeed the whole book has been building up to this climactic moment. Job 42, verse 6. Unfortunately, the reason this verse is so important to move slowly through is that the Hebrew is more complex and contested than the English appears. So what is taking place when Job says, as I read it in my ESV translation, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, there's three important textual notes that are going to open this final verse up and its meaning. The first note is the word despise, when Job says, I despise myself. Despise sounds very loaded. In fact, it plays with our pietistic notions. Maybe you felt that as I was reading it for the first time. This is the notion the friends have often reinforced. Job is lowly and needs to embrace the posture of a maggot or a worm before God. That was Bildad's colorful phrase in Job 25. So many translators have been tempted to say this is surely what Job is getting at. Job has finally realized what we all need to realize, that it's time to despise yourself. Suffering has made you egotistical, and now it's time to release yourself, to focus on yourself less, or perhaps finally to see yourself truly as the miserable, lowly, sinful creature that you are. Yet, the Hebrew actually offers us more options when it comes to this word, despise. The Hebrew word, ma'as, literally means something closer to reject or discard. In fact, Halot, the major academic Hebrew dictionary, is going to suggest that in this passage, the sense could be far closer to the legal term retract that we have in English. So you see where despise is coming from. It's not so far away from reject or discard. But retract is further still, and we're less in a sort of loaded emotional term, and we're far closer to something that's now being withdrawn or perhaps discarded to the side. So the problem really comes here. In Hebrew, the word despise is actually dangling without any object. What that means is that the Hebrew doesn't literally say, I despise myself. Instead, it just says, I despise or I retract, and then it moves on. So you have this choice you have to make as an interpreter. What is it that Job is retracting, rejecting, or discarding? English translations have often opted that Job is rejecting himself. And so we get that highly loaded phrase, I despise myself as the solution to their text. Recently, however, more and more scholars and translations are suggesting that a far better reading here 
is that Job is actually retracting his own words, or more specifically, the words of his case that he's been defending this whole book, a case that suggested God had no plan or design in his creation. I think this makes good sense of the context of God's challenge. Who is this that hides counsel, hides designs without knowledge? This also makes more sense of the context of Job's speech. This means that after his encounter, Job is not simply reverting to silence, but now he's ready to withdraw, to reject or retract the words of his complaint, that God has no care or involvement in the designs of his creation. So that's textual note number one. Textual note number two comes in Job's final claim, that he repents in dust and ashes. Now, I know you're probably over me talking about Hebrew ambiguity at this point, but this word too is loaded with meaning depending on the context. So this is the word naham, and it's a very laden word God will use describing actions that he regrets, such as in Genesis 6-6 when we're told God regretted naham, that he made humanity and was grieved in his heart. You can see how regret here could be taken for Job regretting his words, and therefore his repentance is one of grief and regret at what he had chosen to say. That's possible. However, there is a strangeness to this verb. As sometimes can happen in Hebrew, this verb, nacham, can have two meanings depending on its context. This sometimes happens in Hebrew because of their limited vocabulary. Words have to play double duty, if you will. In this case, the word for repent or regret is also the same verb you would use to describe when someone is consoled or comforted. So you're tracking with me? This means that this final verse could either read that Job repents or regrets his dust and ashes, Or it could mean that Job is comforted or consoled in his dust and ashes. The ESV translation I've been reading from has an honest footnote here where they acknowledge that's actually what could be intended. Halot, again, the academic dictionary of Hebrew, will also suggest that they believe comforted is actually the better choice for what Nacham is getting at here. So why does any of this matter? If you're tracking with me, this actually can make a huge difference to Job's confession. In the ambiguity of the Hebrew language, a language loaded with subtle imagery and words that sometimes carry double meanings, Job could either be dramatically concluding with the statement, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Or Job could be concluding with the confession, I retract my words and am comforted by dust and ashes. Now, I have to ask you, is it possible that the author of Job knew exactly what they were doing when they chose these ambiguous words? Is it possible that even here, there is a playful mystery that invites us to ask what sort of confession we ourselves would make if we were in Job's shoes? So this leads to my third and final textual note about the phrase dust and ashes. Many commentators take these images for their surface value, either noting that Job's repentance has come about because he finally sees that he is just dust and ashes, or that Job's comfort has now come by embracing the enduring place of dust and ashes, that is the suffering that life is intended to hold. 
I get where both are coming from, and I think there's much to ponder in either of those approaches. However, as I was reading Samuel Ballantine, he's one of my other favorite scholars on the book of Job, he put forth this incredible suggestion that I haven't been able to shake ever since I read it. Ballantine notes that the phrase, dust and ashes, together form a kind of idea in the Hebrew language. They work together to form this image, this phrase, that only happens three times across the Old Testament. So the first time this phrase shows up is in the passage we just read. The second time it occurs is earlier in the book of Job, chapter 30, 19, where Job is going to have this just devastating appeal. Job says, He, God, has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Here, Job resents the misery of his current state. Suffering has become a status symbol of his shame, where the human experience of suffering affirms to Job what the friend's been saying all along. He has been abandoned by God to the mire because he is merely dust and ashes. Yet it's the third occurrence of dust and ashes that is most intriguing to Ballantine. It comes in Genesis 18. In chapter 18, the Lord has appeared to Abraham, but then pondered, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's the setup we get in chapter 18. Of the Lord then choosing to share with Abraham his intention to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. As you perhaps recall, this is one of the most fascinating conversations that all of Scripture will give us. Because in it, Abraham questions God. He first asked this question, Will you indeed sweep away the wicked with the righteous? What if there are 50 righteous in that city? Abraham then says this devastating question that eerily resonates with the book of Job. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? The Lord is so moved by this encounter that he will concede. For the sake of fifty righteous, I will not destroy the city. Yet here's where things get really interesting. Abraham will then say in Genesis 18.27, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, though I am but dust and ashes. But then he presses on for more. He asks for 45, for 40, for 30, for 20, and then finally for 10. There it is. Though Abraham is but dust and ashes, he dares to speak. Though Abraham is but dust and ashes, he contends with God. And though Abraham is but dust and ashes, it is in his prayers that justice is extended and that he, a mere creature of dust and ashes, would be dignified enough to be consulted on righteousness and justice by the living God. It's hard not to see the connection between Abraham contending with God for justice and Job's newfound comfort in the meaning of dust and ashes. Job previously had assumed that all of his suffering was this consignment to the mire, the mere dust and ashes of human existence, but instead, in this encounter, he's come to see that God refuses to accept a servant who is silent. 
God has carefully unveiled insight into the care and delight with which he governs an intricately complex world. And in Behemoth and Leviathan, Job has come to realize that though he is but dust and ashes, God invites him to contend on behalf of justice as one of God's noble creations. So taken together, Job's confession is a beautiful turn of phrase. Night of all he has seen, Job will now retract his case. He is comforted by dust and ashes. What we've just overheard is Job's confession. Now, to be clear, I see and maintain the ambiguous phrasing of Job's response. I get why the English translations often go the direction they do. Perhaps all of the book of Job has been summoning in him the courage to finally say, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't think that's a bad confession at all. In fact, I've needed those words at times to reorient my own existence. How easily my suffering allows me to stumble into a self-centric state where all I can see are my own needs or the slights where I've been wronged by friends. There is a gift in this confession. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. A freedom that can come with the release of lowliness before God. However, the more I've sat with Job as a whole, and as I've tried to take you on this journey, I think the book of Job has more in mind than just a humbled repentance and response to the onslaught of God's questions. I think Job's encounter has actually been leading to a confession of transformation. One in which Job, now finally, through God's tutelage, is willing to retract his case. And while there is submission here to wonders which Job could never understand, the end result of this encounter is to be comforted. Job is now consoled by the very dust and ashes of his existence. Though he is lowly and vulnerable, and though all may be taken away, Job can now see the dignity of a creator who invites his chosen people to contend for justice in a world of injustice, to contend for presence in a world of loneliness, to contend for an arbiter in a world of neglect. Job is comforted so that he might continue to contend for God in a world that's suffering. Is it possible that the journey of Job has been given to you in your suffering to elicit a confession? Is it possible that after all of your tears have poured out, all your laments have been spoken, all of your protests, appeals, and rebuttals have been received, that God has now spoken to you in the whirlwind in the hopes that you too might offer forth your own confession? I know confession typically has negative connotations. That's actually why I chose it to capture Job's speech. Most of us assume a confession is one of repentance. And that very well might be the words you need when you find yourself encountering God. Yet this whole study, I've been arguing that not all suffering necessitates repentance. We were told from the start that Job was blameless and upright. We were told from the start that Job's suffering took place for no reason. And when the story concludes, for all Job's wild accusations, God will say to the friends, You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
Not all confessions are about repentance. Some confessions are actually about allegiance. Some confessions are actually this overflowing outburst of love. As you've been journeying with Job, perhaps the invitation is that you actually need to find words for a different kind of confession. Less an admission of guilt and more a renewed perspective on your place before God as one who is but dust and ashes and yet is still dignified as a redeemed agent for justice. One of my favorite confessions comes to us from the Church Father, St. Augustine. You can find it in his appropriately titled book, Confessions. In it, Augustine's going to cover the story of his life. How as an ambitious and talented young man, he was trained as an orator, managed to climb the social ranks all the way to Milan as the chief orator in the emperor's court. Yet along the way, Augustine will describe this haunting, the sense of himself as someone who was lost in a sea of suffering, adrift in a world where the one thing he wanted, to be happy, never seemed to be within his grasp. Unexpectedly, however, Augustine will stumble into the cathedral of Milan, where Ambrose the bishop is preaching. Augustine showed up out of professional intrigue to hear this other famed speaker give a speech, yet what he found instead was Christ, crucified and resurrected, that offered something deeper than the happiness Augustine never seemed able to reach. So there in Milan, under the famed fig tree, Augustine would weep over the turmoil of his soul, and as he did, he would hear the voice of God say, take up and read. There in the burning word, Augustine would find the God he had long run from, who was ready to receive his confession and embrace him as the father who welcomes the prodigal son home. The story of Augustine's confession moves me. It reminds me of the question of God Dr. Nicoli asks his Harvard students to consider as they ponder the lives of Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. The pivot point of our belief points to the trajectory of our suffering. What will we say when God summons us to speak? What lives will we live in light of what we most deeply believe about God in the midst of our suffering? Here's Augustine's words that offer his own reflection on the pivot point of his suffering in one of the famous passages out of the Confessions. Augustine will say, Late have I loved you, beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. See, you were within me this whole time, while I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried aloud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Augustine confesses as a man who has met the whirlwind. He confesses with the freedom of dust and ashes. He pours forth speech 
with the confidence of one who has contended with God and in the end been embraced by him. Augustine has met his maker, and now he lives with heart ablaze. This is the hope I have for you, as one who's been journeying with Job, that you would find something in your confession. Like Augustine, who wanders through the storehouses of his memory and yet knows as he searches that he's no longer alone. Or like Job, who finds that though he remains dust and ashes, he is comforted by his encounter with a God who invites him to continue to speak. Now I know as I offer these words that not all of us will be ready to confess. I was fascinated to discover that Friedrich Nietzsche, the famous deconstructionist who proclaimed God is dead, once acknowledged in a letter to a friend that he was in fact reading Augustine's confession. Upon reading the story with the pear tree, where Augustine confesses before God his sin in stealing, Nietzsche would scoff, Oh, this old rhetorer! How false he is and how distorted his vision! How I laughed about the theft of his youth! If you choose to journey with Freud, all confessions may sound false and distorted. Yet I can't help but hope you might follow in the path of one of my other favorite confessions. This one by the American author Anne Lamont. Lamont is known for her progressive politics, her incredible wit, her brutal honesty about her struggles with alcoholism and depression, her failed marriage, but also most about her unexpected discovery of Jesus and faith. Lamont's confession is so powerful precisely because it was discovered in the midst of her suffering. This is the confession that Lamont found herself making. I did not mean to be a Christian. I have been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus 12 years ago was, I swear to God, I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewling outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, you're screwed. The next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping on your chest at dawn to play a little push-push. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I would not, could not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses. Or something. Anyway, he wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, F it. Come in. I quit. He started sleeping on my bed that night. It was not so bad. It was even pretty nice. He loved me. He didn't shed or need to have his claws trimmed. He never needed a flea dip. I mean, what a savior, right? Then, when I was dozing, tiny kitten that I was, he picked me up like a mother cat by the scruff of my neck and deposited me in a little church across from the flea market in Marin's Black Ghetto. That's where I was when I came to. And then I came to believe. There's something very Job-like in the honesty of Lamont's words. And there's that tinge of playful delight that I hear echoed through God's words in Job. 
Lamont has nothing fancy to say. She's not even sure God's right. But her suffering has caused her to concede to her own dust and ashes. With her confession, she says, I quit. Come in. This is where the journey has led you. That you too would have a confession to make. I want to invite you here yet again to return to the word. To spend time with any of Job that you haven't gotten a chance to. But especially to spend time with Job's confession. Job 42, 1-6. As with each episode, we have this incredible study available to you on our website, burningwordpodcast.com, that culminates in an exercise. This episode, if you're ready, I'm inviting you to write your own confession. Maybe it gets down low and embraces the need to repent of some sins that in the midst of your suffering have truly been stunting your life. Or maybe, like Augustine, it soars to the rafters of wonder and delight, the God who would weave together your life until your heart is set ablaze. Or maybe, like Anne Lamont, you just simply say, F it. I quit. Come in, God. I can't take this suffering alone anymore. I think Job understands all those confessions. I think God knows what confession you need to make. And I think whatever it is, There is comfort to be found in a life of suffering, dust and ashes, lived in confession before God. This has been John Perrine with The Burning Word. Until next time, grace and peace. (laughs) 